Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Today's guest is Michael Togayas, the author of many true rescue stories, including The Finest Hours, which was adapted into a Disney film. His latest, Into the Blizzard, has been adapted for middle grade readers from his adult nonfiction book about the blizzard of 1978. Michael joined me today to talk about the difference between seeking publication with fiction versus nonfiction and the challenge of adapting his own work for a younger audience. Make your pages look professional with vellum. Margins, headers, page numbering, font, line spacing all happen automatically with every book you create. Generate ebooks for Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo, and others, or deliver a beautiful print book to your readers. Visit trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. Vellum. Create beautiful books. Much of my audience is comprised of aspiring authors, and as a published nonfiction writer, it would be great if you could talk about the difference in the publication process when writing nonfiction. I know some things are similar and some things are different, such as writing a proposal versus writing a query. So if you could just talk a little bit about the process of nonfiction publishing and the attempt to acquire an agent with nonfiction and that process as it differs from fiction. Would I, I think the nonfiction is easier in terms of uh, the proposal level and securing a publisher or agent. And the reason I say that is you don't need to have the whole book completed to land a contract. My proposals are usually about, say, five to six pages. That proposal alone with even just one or two sample chapters could be enough to to land a uh, contract, whereas with fiction, they're probably going to want to see the entire book if you're a brand new author. You're, you know, there's a lot more work going into it, not knowing what the final result will be. The proposal for nonfiction is pretty straightforward. I open up with the, the concept of the book. Then I'll talk about the author's credentials and it. That doesn't mean you have to have a book published under your belt, but maybe you have expertise in this area or you've been working in the field or studying this particular topic. The nitty gritty gets down to the, what I would call the meat of the proposal, where you're, you're describing usually in a chronological order of how this narrative nonfiction is going to flow. Um, you're, you're basically telling the story in a concise form. And finally, I usually mention similar books and I think that's helpful because oftentimes the uh, editor or publisher will know some of the more popular similar books. And then you're explaining the similarities, but also the differences, what makes your book unique. So in that respect, I think nonfiction might be a little, a little easier. 
when you talk about your topics and you were saying when there are other books that have touched upon the topics that you're using as comp titles, you illustrate how yours is similar yet also different and is bringing something new to the table. For nonfiction writers, should they be looking to touch on topics that are of current debate that perhaps are obviously like global warming would be a good one for the moment. Is it important to be touching on things that are topical at the moment or is it more important to try to focus on a topic that's going to be evergreen? I wouldn't get too hung up on trying to focus on the topic of the moment because, you know, for example, many of my books are historical in nature. For example, I did a book above and beyond about some lesser known events during the Cuban Missile Crisis. At the very end of the proposal, I say this is topical because of the current tensions with Iran and in North Korea, but that's not really the gist of the book. The gist is these little known events that almost put us on the brink of war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, yeah, I think you've got to follow your passion in terms of what is it that you're bringing new to the table, whether it's history or whether it's uh, another topic and not get too hung up on what's going on currently. Because by the time your book gets published, what's current now could be totally out of date and out of vogue. Yes, that's very true. So is it similar to uh, fiction publishing then in that if you're going the traditional route, it's going to take anywhere from 18 months to two years to move from manuscript to published finished product? Yes, maybe a little shorter in some cases. Um, I just signed a contract for a memoir, which are very hard to get published because everybody wants to write those, but I've done one in the past. They're kind of outdoor humor, like Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods. Uh, Mine was called There's a Porcupine in My Outhouse. Uh, This recent deal was have the manuscript to them by this April. And I actually just sent it off last night, so I was ahead of schedule. And the book will be published the following April. So let's talk about your newest release, Into the Blizzard. It is geared toward a middle-grade audience. So why did you make the decision to move away from adult, and put your foot into the middle grade realm? Well, a while back, probably four years ago, I was connected with Christy Ottaviano, one of the editors at Holt for Middle Reader Books, and we did uh, The Finest Hours as a middle reader book. Now, that was my adult book that became a Disney movie. Uh, The Finest Hours is about the greatest postcard rescue ever. You know, that was an easy sell to have that book turned into a middle reader. But I found that she and I work so well together, editor and writer, that I said, why don't we do a couple of my other adult books, adapt them for middle readers? And we've just been clicking on all cylinders. So that's how Into the Blizzard came about. That's the that's the title for the young adult version of my adult book which was titled 10 Hours Until Dawn. You know, same topic, uh, but one is for adults, 10 hours is for adults, Into the Blizzard is for young adults. And when you go about that adaptation, what are you looking for as the author of the original material? 
What are you looking to do with that to turn it into something that is more approachable for the middle grade reader beyond uh, vocabulary, obviously? What is your approach? Are you changing structure or what are you looking at to say, how do I make this accessible to middle grade? Uh, You know, it's interesting. A lot of people think that uh, the conversion process is a layup, (laughs) but trust me, it's not. It's a, it's a, a lot of work that's not really apparent. And the probably the biggest step is the adult book might be, say, 70,000 words. Your middle reader book is going to be shorter, say, 45,000 words. And people think, oh, you just cut out parts of the book. But you can't do it that easy because you're going to confuse the reader if you leave out one key component. So it's literally going through every sentence and saying, is there anything I can trim here without losing the reader's focus and the tension of the story? So you're going sentence by sentence and looking where you can trim. And it's more labor intensive than I would have ever thought. You're simplifying some technical things for a middle reader. For example, Into the Blizzard takes place out on the ocean during the blizzard of 1978. So there are some nautical terms and not every middle reader will understand what they mean. So I might, you know, add a little bit of an explanation. I try to think back to when I was 12 years old, what kind of books did I like? And they were always the books that were fast paced. So that's, that's been my mantra, make it fast paced. Again, a little more, uh, more work than I thought, but very rewarding when you, when you hear back from a, a teenager that says, you know, I'm not a big reader. I wasn't even looking forward to reading this book, but I read it in two nights. And I'm like, wow, that's what I hope. You know, just make it fast. Make them feel like they're on this boat caught in the blizzard, the storm of the century on the ocean. I was not alive in 1978, but I would be there soon. And a lot of the familial legends that we have in my family is you know, the blizzard. We talk about it all the time. I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in Ohio. I still live here. Yeah. And the blizzard of 78 is a topic constantly. So when you're talking about choosing your topics yourself, whether for adult or middle grade, when you're, when you're adapting your stuff, how do you find a topic? Like what as a nonfiction author makes you say, I know, let's do this next. That's a a great question. And, you know, having done seven books of that genre of, you know, these true survival at sea stories, I'm constantly pitched ideas when I go out and speak. Someone will come up to me and say, oh, I've got a survival at sea story for you. And Mm -hmm. within five minutes, I know whether it's any good or not for me, because what I find is most of the stories are here with make a good magazine article, Mm -hmm. but could never sustain a whole book. They don't have enough surprises. They don't go on long enough through a time period. Um, They're kind of cut and dry. I got in terrible trouble on the ocean, fell off the boat, was out there for hours, was rescued. So I'm looking for the more complex stories that will really surprise the reader with, with both the survival part of it, but also how did they get rescued? And oftentimes uh, the rescues are just as exciting as the survivor's story. I did a book 
called A Storm Too Soon, and the, the rescue takes place in 80-foot waves, one wave after another. It's on my website. What I found really compelling about A Storm Too Soon was even the rescue swimmer needed to be rescued. You know, once they dropped him down into the water to help with these survivors, he was overcome by these waves. So mm-hmm. you could imagine the the three people left in the helicopter going, oh my God, now we can't even get our own guy back. So yeah, I'm looking for those twist, turns, surprises that'll carry a whole book. And I think I think that rule of thumb would be good for other aspiring writers. Is it, is it a great magazine article or can it really carry a whole book of say 250 pages? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a lot of people don't understand because the same thing happens to me as a writer when I'm uh, out and I'm touring or if I'm having conversations, even with people just in everyday life. And they'll say, well, I have the idea for your next book. And I'm like, no, actually, I probably have the idea for my next book. But, <laughs> you know, tell me your story. And often it is like you're saying, it's just that it's a story. That's so true. I get pitched that all the time. And um, but you know what? Every say one out of 30 really is a fascinating story that I will begin to look into. And then, you know, within a short period of time, know if it's going to work or not. I don't mind hearing people's stories at all. And sometimes there is something to them. But I think, too, that very often you actually have to have that personal connection to the story in order for it to interest you. So oftentimes people say, you know, I have the best story. That's great for them, but sometimes it's only interesting if you know the people in the story or if you have a personal connection to it. And as a writer, it is difficult sometimes to find those stories that are going to be more universal, that are going to pull in more than just the people who are already intimately connected to it. So how do you know as a nonfiction author when you've hit that goldmine of that universal story? For, for me, it's oftentimes an event that, uh, say it's say it's a historical event, that I'll go, hey, I'm a big history buff, big history reader, but I had no idea that happened. For example, with Above and Beyond, the Cuban Missile Crisis, I had no idea that the, the Soviet Union shot down one of our pilots and killed him over Cuba, you know. People seem to know about Gary Powers shot down over Russia, but not this Mm -hmm. one. So I was like, wow, if that really surprised me and I want to learn more of how that all happened and how that didn't lead to all out war, I figured the reader is going to feel the same way. So it's it's that element of surprise for me that I'm that I'm looking for. And the same with these uh, true survival stories that I write as well got to have that that element of surprise going wow i can't that seems to be off the charts in terms of how anyone could survive yes and survivor stories they're thrilling simply because of the fact that we can see that humans are resilient and they can go through so much and come out the other side And it also, I think, gives us hope. And I think hope is something that we really need right now. And so survival stories, I think, are evergreen in so many ways, especially in dark times. Yes. And, you know, just knowing that, say, for example, 
four young men and women from the Coast Guard will risk their lives going out for a total stranger mm-hmm. who is in a life and death situation because they screwed up because of their own fault. And now you've got the four young people putting their lives on the line to rescue them. Yeah. So you're right. It, it is got that element that, that we kind of need of hope. And, but oftentimes if I hear a story and I think maybe I could have survived that, I'll go, I don't want to write about it. I want to write about the ones that I go, I could have never made that. <laughs> yes. I did a book, Fatal Forecast, where the the vessel is hit by a hundred foot rogue wave. It's just a little 50 foot boat off Cape Cod. And this hundred foot rogue wave capsizes the boat and three of the four people inside are trapped and perish. But one, one guy gets out, his name's Ernie Hazard. And what he goes through in the next three days, and this is in late November in the North Atlantic. So you can only imagine Mm. what he goes through is just off the charts. I mean, the Coast Guard never dreamed they'd find him alive. They were just searching for a body. And the fact mm. that he made it made me want to call him up, say, can I interview you? And he lived in California. And I said, I will be on the next flight out when he said yes. Have you ever written about an event where the outcome wasn't so rosy, where people um, were lost or there was not that element of redemption or hope at the end. Have you ever had to handle something like that? Yes. And surprisingly, uh, that's one of the books that, that people love and I get mail on. And that's the 10 hours until dawn for adults and into the blizzard for young adults. It does not have a, a neat and happy ending. It's uplifting in that people did their best and tried. But what, what made that research interesting and unique for me was if some of the people perished, how can you write about what they're going through unless you speculate? And I got very lucky that someone on land recorded all their radio communications. So in some cases, the men who are doomed are telling you what they're doing to try and fight through this, this storm. You know, and so getting back to, say, the proposals, for example, I remember when I wrote the proposal for that, I said, this book is similar to The Perfect Storm, but very different in that in The Perfect Storm, Sebastian Younger had to speculate. But in 10 hours until dawn, I have the radio transcripts and I weave in what the men were saying from the actual radio communications. And that that definitely gives it this extra edge of tension when you know it's not Michael Tagayas uh, making up dialogue. I'm taking it direct from these audio tapes. Oh boy, are those? Is it difficult to listen to? Well, because I didn't know the men, it wasn't too difficult. But by the end of you know the year and a half of research, I did feel close to two of the guys in particular, and it, and it did become difficult. And, it, and sometimes when I speak on the subject, it's difficult to talk about them. One was named Charlie Bucko, and he was like somebody out of central casting, like a Hollywood character, this tall, good-looking guy with a free spirit, funny, 
had been in Vietnam, two Purple Hearts when he was there, had done a whole bunch of Coast Guard rescues, had then decided, I'm getting out of the Coast Guard because I'm getting married and I don't want to make my wife a widow. And uh, when the storm comes and he's asked to go out and help some Coast Guard men who are in trouble out in the ocean, he says yes. And as the author, you know the outcome isn't going to be good. So where you've grown close to that character, each time you speak on that subject, it does cause a little bit of pain. Mm, I can't imagine. I really can't. Coming up, research and the process of interviewing your subjects face-to-face. Make your pages look professional with Vellum. Margins, headers, page numbering, font, line spacing, all happen automatically with every book you create. Generate ebooks for Kindle, Apple Books, Kobo, and others, or deliver a beautiful print book to your readers. Visit trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more. Vellum, create beautiful books. Research, do you do before you actually begin writing the book? Like, how much of a uh, grounding do you take before you before you decide you have enough to begin? I oftentimes I'll start the book, even though I know the research is still going to continue, and I encourage other writers to do the same because you can always go back and add more or tweak it. It starts to coalesce a little better if you actually start the writing while you're doing the research. And in terms of the the time involved, I'd much rather interview people who are involved, you know, and just let them talk with a tape recorder than going back through archival material. And in some books I've had to do had to do both. For example, with uh, the finest hours, you know, that became the movie. The, you know, some of the people involved are no longer with us. So you're going through newspaper interviews that they gave back in 1952. Others were in their 80s when I interviewed them. And that was great because I could sit down with these older gentlemen and just let the tape recorder run and then do follow ups. So it is it is nice to have that mix, whereas, you know, if you're I did two books on King Philip's Indian War there, it's all archival material. And after a while, it's kind of a lonely process. Yes, exactly. And that was going to be my next question. Do you have uh, research assistance? Yep, I do it all on my own. You know, unless you're the David McCullough of the world, um, you're not going to have research assistance. So that. That strength of yours, you'll have to develop as strong as the writing of having people be comfortable around you to really open up and and give them the confidence that you're going to tell their story accurately. Every once in a while, you'll meet someone who's reluctant to to talk. In the book, A Storm Too Soon, there's three, three survivors and two wanted their stories to be out and be known, but the third didn't. But eventually I was able to show him the early chapters based on my interview with the other two and the rescuers. And that gave him a comfort level. And he was like, well, 
it's my story too. I don't want to be left out. So oftentimes they will come around. You just, you have to be patient and not, not pressure them, but be, be persistent would be uh, the message because oftentimes they'll change their mind when they see you're very serious and you're uh, going to pay close attention to the, the details. Mm-hmm. Well, and also I assume when you are working with subject matter where people were in intense situations, they were in traumatic situations. I'm sure that you, you have to illustrate that you're going to be handling this correctly and with respect. Exactly. Um, and you know, and sometimes you become close friends with these people, the, the main survivor in my book overboard, I just stayed at his house last week. I spend the winters in Florida and he's on the other side of Florida and I was over there speaking. So I just called him out of the blue and said, Hey, I'm going to be in your neck of the woods. Can I stay at your place? I've stayed there before. <laughs> and he's like, sure, Mike. And, uh, you know, so we've become close. He knows he's got an open invitation to stay on my side of Florida and vice versa. So that that's one of the biggest rewards, I think, is the friendships. And when the book comes out that the people who are there saying, you got it right, uh, thank you, you know. They're, they're sticking their necks out with a total stranger. And because it's such a sensitive topic to them, life and death, you can't help but grow close. You know, you'd, you'd have to be a cold-hearted SOB not to grow close to these people. The ability to interview someone and to get them to open up, but also for them to be comfortable and to understand that you do regard them not just as a story or a scoop, that they're a human being that has been through something. There's a special skill to getting people to open up to you and um, developing that relationship. So do you have any tips about how to be a both ethic and moral, ethical and moral interviewer? I do think it's okay to let the, the people you've interviewed check over your rough draft. Um, I don't see anything wrong with that. They're the one tell they're the only ones who know the story anyways. If they're say out on the ocean alone, um, you're going by what they tell you. So I I find that puts them at ease knowing, okay, I'm gonna get a look at it. They're not going to change my writing style. They're not going to change the structure, but they may catch a little mistake here and there. Like they'll say, oh Mike, this event only lasted an hour. You have it down as it lasting a couple hours. This shark, Mike, you've got it as five feet, but I got to tell you, it was a good nine feet, you know, little things like that. And I, and I welcome those. I want to, I want to make it accurate. So I think that would be a key way for a, a writer to have their subject feel comfortable, say, I'd be happy to let you take a look at these drafts and correct me if I'm wrong on anything. And when it comes to actually conducting your interviews, do you tend to meet with the same person more than once? Yes. And I'll, I'll have a tape recorder. And oftentimes, <laughs> sometimes I'll show up with two tape recorders and be taking notes. And they'll be like, why? And I'll be like, I'm so afraid one, one won't record or, you know, this is so important to me to, to get it all. And, uh, and I always let them know, you know, we'll keep this conversation going for as long as or as little as you like. With Ernie Hazard and the book Fatal Forecast, I stayed at his house for a week straight. We had a wonderful time. We would do the interviews in the evening, 
And then sometime, and then the next day I'd go over it and I'd have questions. Uh, but we'd also spend some fun time going out to dinner or taking walks. Yeah, my style's a, a little different. He had been interviewed by somebody else and he said, yeah, that person was just all business. And he said, you're not like that, so I'm more comfortable. And I said, that's just me. It, you know, I, I, I don't know any other way to do it. Yeah. And I think that you're going to get, especially if you're writing, you're writing beyond the facts with your nonfiction. You're actually delving into the person and their experience and their humanity. And in order to actually tap into that, you need more than the bare bones of the events. You need to understand this human being as well as you can. Exactly. It's yeah. And sometimes you, the best way to do it is face to face. Now, if it's a minor character in the book, I don't mind doing the interview over the phone. You get the gist of what you need. But if it's a major character, you, you definitely want to be with them in person. You know, I've, I flew to France for one of the characters in a storm too soon and stayed. I took my daughter with me and we stayed with the gentleman and his wife uh, for four days. And it was, we had the time of our lives. So, and he was just so appreciative that, that I came over. Um, so he's like, okay, this guy means business. He's gonna, he's really devoting himself to this project. And speaking of that devotion, typically how much time does it take you from rough draft to final product? It, it does vary, but I would say for the true survival rescue books, usually about two years, if you were doing it, you know, you're not, you're never doing anything full time. I speak around the country and, you know, to either business groups or uh, lecture. I'm never doing it full time, but I'd say about two years, but, you know, as I'm giving you that answer, I'm thinking of my latest book. It's going to be called The Waters Between Us. It's about me growing up in the relationship with my father. And mo- most of the book takes place in the, in the outdoors because I'm an outdoors guy, I'm always on rivers or mountains. And um, that book took me, God, it's been at least 10 years. And you would think that would be the fastest one to do because I'm writing it a lot from my own memory, but some parts, some parts were challenging and there's a tragedy in the book, a family tragedy that brings my father closer together. But my two brothers advised me, we prefer you don't write about that. And I said, I have to, it's, it's part of my journey of growing up, but I'd like you to, to take a look at that chapter because you were involved in this tragedy and make sure I don't make any mistakes. So you know, there were just little things like that that made it a very time-consuming book and a, a lot of rewrites on that book compared to others. You know, for example, Overboard, I sent the manuscript to Simon & Schuster. The editor got back to me a month later and said, it looks great. I'm sending it on to the copy editor. And I was like, wow, you no, no changes? No, looks great, he said. So I was happy as hell because uh, I thought it looked good too. And then, of course, the copy editor makes a bunch of improvements because I always could use help there. Whereas the waters between us, uh, I'd say the first 
three chapters I rewrote six, seven times. When you're doing the research, when you're compiling, do you have, I know you were saying you usually have your recorder and you also are taking physical notes. When you are getting ready to compile all of this information, do you have a certain system that you go about? Do you have a cork board in front of your desk? Do you spread things out on the floor around you? What's your method? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you asked because it's, it's very unusual and very old fashioned. Um, everything's paper copies mm -hmm. and everything's in files in the right order. So for example, I'll know where this interview or this bit of uh, archival research goes, and it might be the file I label beginning of chapter two, mm -hmm. you know, and it, or it might be the file labeled the ending of chapter two. But in each one of those files will be a whole bunch of paper. Some will be little handwritten notes that I woke up in the middle of the night and remembered, oh, I need to say this. And um, it's would probably drive younger people nuts who are used to everything digitally or electronically, but it just works for me. And in the writing process, and again, I just finished uh, this new book just a couple of days ago, I would take all these different notes and then start looking at them and condensing them into, say, three or four sheets of, of master notes per chapter. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're starting to throw out these little slips of paper and just get the gist of it down. And, uh, yeah, so I'm a kind of a paper guy where other people, they might go to say the national archives with their camera and take photos of whatever this historical document they're doing is. But for me, it's like, what am I going to do with that photo? I need it. And, you know, like you said, laid out on the floor and on tables all around my writing station. Yeah, that's what I do as well. Even though I write fiction, I do a lot of research before I start writing about anything. And I will just have piles around me kind of fanned <laughs> out. And it may not make sense to anyone else, and that's fine. It doesn't have to. It only needs to make sense to me. And I often yeah. um, just have kind of a mess all around me. And I just like to think of taking all that information and just being funneled into one place and, and transformed into fiction. And that's that's my own process. And it's it is mostly uh, physical copies as well. I for whatever reason, when I'm doing research, I, I want to have that physical copy in front of me to write on, to make notes. I need that tactile interaction. It all helps me right. feel like I'm being more effective of a researcher. Do you find that um, you write a pretty detailed outline for the fiction books and then when you're actually writing the book, you don't pay that much attention to the outline? I don't outline at all. I keep all my information right at my fingertips so that when I get to a point where I need to reference something, I know which pile I need. I reach out and I grab that particular paper but usually, no, I'm not doing any type of outlining. I'm a, I'm a big fan of pantsing most everything. So you have a general idea of where this fiction book is going, but you don't have it all spelled out, you know, chapter by chapter. Here's how it's going to flow. 
Yeah, no, not at all. I I just do the deep dive and I see what happens. So that way it feels organic to the fiction. So And that, again, and that's that's kind of similar even on the nonfiction where where I do need a little bit of an outline via the proposal. Once I start writing, oftentimes I veer way off what I originally thought the flow would be. Oh yes. And and do you do you find, Mendy, that at your level now that you can get a contract without writing the whole book? Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I can usually just pitch uh, a synopsis, but my editor knows at this point that what I turn in as a synopsis may or may not be what actually happens in the book. I just give them yeah. something that says, this is my concepts and this is probably what happens, but you know that I may not stick to it. And they, they will um, operate within those parameters for me. If they think the concept is there, they trust me enough to know that I'll deliver the book. Now that's that's a great uh, a great uh, relationship to have, where they have that that trust for you. Yeah, it is. It is. I can't complain, and uh, I I revel in it, and I know that I'm lucky, and I'm very glad because. Fiction, as you were saying, you do generally have to have a finished manuscript and you can pour a couple years into a manuscript that may never sell. I know. I know. We're, we're in the craziest business there is, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe you equate it to farming where you don't know if your crop's going to ever get harvested or not. Something's going to come along a hailstorm and wipe it out. But um, yeah, it's a nutty business where you just don't know if all that hard work you're going to be paid for it. Yeah. But there's something that drives us. And if you get that little bit of encouragement, you, you keep going and you do need to be persistent. If you're not a persistent type of person, it's probably not the right business for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's funny that you bring up the farming comparison because I am from a family of farmers and that's how I grew up. And you just, you really don't understand what fluctuations are like until your entire question of whether or not you get new shoes depends on if it rains. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's perfect. Right. And it's the same for, same for a writer. You're pitching these ideas and you might've had 50 rejections and you're wondering when am I going to be able to buy new shoes? Yeah, but you may like not. I say, yeah, like I say, you only need one hit in this business. It's you know, That's you right. don't need a high batting average. All you need is one publisher. And with with nonfiction, oftentimes you're going to a different publisher because it's a different uh, topic. For example, mm-hmm. one book that I co-wrote is about the first U-boat to come into the Gulf of Mexico. And it sinks a freighter with a family of four on board. So you have a World War II story, but right here off our coast, uh, Simon and Schuster, they're more interested, my editor there is more interested in those more recent survival at sea stories. So they weren't enthusiastic about it, but I found a wonderful publisher with Pegasus Books to do so close to home. Mm. So, you know, you're out there, pitching from scratch to a brand new publisher. Yeah, I'd say over my career, I've probably had 12 different publishers. 
Wow. <laughs> yep. And the and the relationship with Christy Ottaviano for these uh, True Rescue series for the middle reader, that looks like the most permanent one yet. I could see she and I working together on these types of books. Uh, we've got three that are out now and two more on the way. Um, I could see that relationship continuing. That's wonderful. That's I hope so. I think that's fantastic. Last thing, where can listeners find your books and where can they find you online? My website, Michael, and then the last name is spelled T-O-U-G-I-A-S dot com. So michaeltagaius.com. And on that website, there's a little bit of everything. There's You'll see the, the raft in the 80-foot waves where I mentioned the rescue swimmer was in trouble. You'll see that video. You'll see a video of me describing how I put a book together. Uh, there's a place to purchase autograph books. There's uh, a little bit of about the speaking that I do for business groups that are inspiring stories. Or, for example, from the Cuban Missile Crisis, I do a program about JFK. What were the steps in his decision making to come to the the right conclusion to get the missiles out of Cuba without starting nuclear war. So I, I've it's I've crammed a lot into that website. I'm so glad I had help building it because my attempts were awful. <laughs> All the help I can get. I feel confident with my writing, but just about everything else, uh, I need help. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar. <laughs>